I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, you're listening to a special festive episode of The Economist Asks with a roundup of some of the highlights from the latter half of this year. I'm Anne McElvoy, head of Economist Radio. And coming up on this show... Salman Rushdie gives us his thoughts on separatism. Whether it's here or in America or indeed in India, people are reacting because they feel unsupportive of the system that exists. They feel alienated from it. They feel it doesn't represent them. Hillary Clinton explains exactly what happened in America's election last year. For women in particular, uh, it's taken us this long until my nomination to ever get the nomination of a major party. I think that was a significant breakthrough. And the true meaning of, well, truth. The double-blind technique, which is now universally used in medical research, is where neither the doctor and the experimenter nor the nurse nor the patient knows whether they're getting the drug or the placebo. But first, what separates man from apes? Earlier this year, our correspondent Jason Palmer spoke to the eminent primatologist Dr Jane Goodall, about her lifelong dedication to animals. Her methods eventually transformed her field, yet here she explains how close interactions with apes were initially frowned on by the scientific community. Can you imagine how it felt when I got there and was told by these erudite professors, of whom I have to say I was nervous, that I'd done everything wrong, that the chimpanzees should have had numbers, it wasn't scientific to give them names. They didn't all say that, but many did. But they basically all said you cannot talk about chimpanzees having personalities, minds, and especially emotions, because those are unique to us. So back then in the early 60s, it was truly thought that the difference between us and all the other animals was a difference of kind. And fortunately, when I was told this, I remembered my childhood teacher who taught me that in this respect anyway, those professors were wrong. And that was my dog, Rusty. You cannot share your life in a meaningful way with a dog, a cat, a rabbit, a horse. I don't care what it is, a bird, and not know that, of course, animals have personalities, minds, and emotions. And now you can study those things, and especially the, the, the mind. And even we come on to our animals sentient, and one by one, we break down the barriers that used to be erected between us and the rest of the animal kingdom. And so the questions I get asked after lectures, they change. And uh, what do chimpanzees think about death? Have chimpanzees got souls? Those are the kind of questions that come up now. Can you imagine how the professors would have felt if you came came to university with questions like that? More, though, than challenging the numbers versus names, there was more acute criticism as well. There were people saying you'd made up what you had seen. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I was just the geographic cover girl. Well, quite. I, I guess the question is, how much do you suppose that, that that reaction was based in sexism? 
Oh, I think quite a lot. There's been a lot of soul-searching around the world this year. Populism and global uncertainty have combined into a heady mix of nationalism and separatism. So are identity politics a new obsession? I put this question to an authority on the subject, the author Salman Rushdie. I think it indicates a disillusion with the structures that exist. And I think a lot of this internationally, whether it's here or in America or indeed in India, people are reacting because they feel unsupportive of the system that exists. They feel alienated from it. They feel it doesn't represent them. And I think that certainly was a factor in the Trump election. There were were people who just wanted somebody to go in there and smash things up because they felt unrepresented by the system as it existed. They wanted the sound of breaking glass, Yes, someone said. You were born in the year of partition, 70 years ago, and that sense of India, India's changing sense of identity very much informs a lot lot of your writing, particularly, of course, Midnight's Children, your very famous novel. What's your balance of optimism and pessimism now? I mean, of these three countries that I've spent my life thinking about, the one I'm most worried about is India. Basically, what's happened is the rise of a Hindu nationalist rhetoric, which has commanded very, very wide popularity amongst the majority Hindu population. And as a result of that, the government is able to make quite fundamental changes to the nature of the state. You know, that's to say that the old Gandhian, Nehruvian idea of a secular India, which was created precisely in order to protect minorities, of which the Muslims are the largest minority, that's being unraveled at very high speed and being replaced by a non-secular idea of the nation, by the idea of a Hindu nation, in which, by definition, everyone else is kind of a second-class citizen. And, of course, there was just enough time to ask him whether he can now laugh about life under the fatwa. Well, I think it taught me things. First of all, you have to answer the question of why you're doing it and what is it that is worth risking your life for. So it made me much more aware of of free speech issues, you know, and, and things like that. I mean, I always believed in free speech, but it's only when somebody tries to gag you that you begin to really believe in free speech. Also, I think I learned a great lesson about love, you know, which is that the thing I've always said that helped me survive it, that to, to come through it reasonably in one piece, and as you say, kind of sunny of disposition, has to do with the love that I was shown by friends and family, you know, and, and those people rallying around me and helping me deal with everything were of crucial importance to me. And, and it just taught me something, which if you want to put it at its corniest, is that the love was stronger than the hate. And uh, yeah, I've not forgotten that. Laughing about the past is a valuable quality, but hindsight doesn't always throw out humorous conclusions. After losing out on a seat in the Oval Office to Donald Trump, Hillary Clinton probably didn't think she had that much to chuckle about. On the release of her book on the election entitled What Happened, The Economist's editor-in-chief, Zanny Minton-Beddows, and I sat down with the former Secretary of State to find out for ourselves what stops a woman from becoming the President of the United States. Here's Zanny. Do you know, that for me is particularly striking, though, because in so many ways, the United States is the beacon of progress. But there are what? I think there have been 70 leaders, female leaders around the world. and I think 15 countries now have female heads of government Mm -hmm. and yet not the United States. Is there something peculiarly persistent about sexism in politics in America and why? Well, Zanny, I think that there are two answers to this. One, uh, it is, in my view, 
somewhat easier for a woman to rise to the head of government in a parliamentary system. Uh, the constituency that she serves gets to know her and can value her. The colleagues with whom she works can uh, more readily recognize her leadership uh, abilities. It's a little more difficult uh, in a presidential system where the head of state and the head of government are the same person. But I also think in, um, in our presidential campaigns, it is a gauntlet one has to run. And it's challenging for anybody, man or woman, uh, but for women in particular, uh, it's taken us this long until my nomination to ever get the nomination of a major party. Uh, and I think that was a significant breakthrough because I did, after all, win the popular vote. So there is not a wholesale rejection of a woman president, but I think we have work to do to try to make sure that certain voters, certain parts of the country feel more comfortable with the idea. But doesn't that work have to be done both amongst men and women? Because the striking thing about your loss is, is not just that you lost very heavily amongst white working class women, but that you also didn't win as strongly as many people expected amongst college educated women. You're right. I eked out a very narrow margin among white college educated women. I won overwhelmingly with black women and uh, Latina women. Um, and I think there are several factors. I mean, one is I actually got more white women's votes than uh, Barack Obama did in 2012. So this is a problem for the Democratic Party and the Democratic nominee. Uh, but I think it's also uh, very clear that gender has not up until now played the kind of motivating role that race did with Barack Obama's election. Uh, women are much more uh, torn by competing interests and also... Did you and, underestimate that? Well, I didn't, I, I don't know whether I underestimate it. I certainly knew it because I knew what the history with Democratic nominees happened to be and how difficult it was to get the white women's vote and forget about the white men's vote, unfortunately, uh, in election after election. Um, but I think I, I myself could have perhaps done a better job in reaching out and reassuring women and white voters in general. Of course, with fake news, confirmation bias and alternative facts all making their way into the global chatter this year, the search for any sort of truth can be a tricky one. So can science provide the method with which we might divine it? I asked one of our recent guests, the evolutionary biologist Richard Dawkins, if there can really be objective truth at all, or whether our existing biases always win out. The scientific method isn't infallible. I mean, scientists make mistakes, Some, a few of them even cheat, and, and we have to sort of police that. But the scientific method is set up in such a way as to make cheating very difficult, as to make self-deception very difficult. Science has methods in play which force a scientist not to be biased in a way that inevitably somebody is going to be biased, especially in medical research, for example, where you're testing, say, a, a new drug against a, a placebo control. The double-blind technique, which is now universally used in medical research, is where neither the doctor and the experimenter nor the nurse nor the patient knows whether they're getting the drug or the placebo, so that there's no possibility of the scientist biasing the results or anybody biasing the results 
in the way that they want or even the way they don't want because scientists are sometimes so scrupulous that they'll be biased against their pet hypothesis. The double-blind control trial makes it impossible to be biased in that way. So the, these methods are in place, but it, nevertheless, there is fallibility in science, and that's why sometimes you read in the Daily Mail, so-and-so causes cancer, and then the next day you read the same thing, cures cancer. This sort of hyper-cautious uh, scientific approach can give a misleading impression to the public who, who hear scientists being cautious and they say something like, oh, well, scientists aren't sure, therefore. Scientists aren't sure. Indeed, one of the virtues of science is that we're not sure. I mean, not, not, not being sure is in, in a way a happy position for a scientist to be in because it means that there's work to do. One of our guests this year has no trouble delving into historical truths and playing them out with some caustic satirical wit. Armando Iannucci, the writer of hit TV shows Veep and the Thick of It, brought out a new film recently. It's called The Death of Stalin, and it explored the power jostling at the top of the Kremlin after the dictator's demise. Our United States editor, John Prideau, sat down for a chat with Mr Iannucci, and he asked him whether satire had really died under the challenge of the age of Donald Trump. He is his own satirist. Every tweet he makes has its own exaggeration and distortion, which is what satirists do and comedians do. Um, any attempt to replicate Trump in a fictional form, I think, is going to suffer because it will never be as true and as horrific as the reality. I think, though, that comedy, political comedy in America has got stronger from another means, which is journalism. John Oliver on his Last Week Tonight and Seth Meyers and, you know, the chat show host that you said, Stephen Colbert, Samantha Bee, The Daily Show, what they do is they employ teams of researchers and journalists and they investigate what's going on. If Trump is saying that everything is fake news, that you lot behind your microphones and your cameras are all fake into that artificial vacuum, comedians are now pouring in with their fact-checking. And so someone like John Oliver would say, OK, Trump said this, but four years ago he said that, which is the opposite. Two, you know, two months ago, Trump said he was going to do this. Well, this is what's happened, which is the opposite. And he lays out the facts and the comedy comes from the, the funny sequence of truths that he puts out in front of you. So it's, a, it's an interesting time. I think what it is is there was a period where comedians had to kind of take stock and think, OK, this isn't working, you know, just doing funny Trump impressions, you know, isn't really going to get to the bottom of what the hell is going on at the moment. So, and I think now you're getting a whole range of generation of comedians who are, are, have very strong uh, you know, a, a effect on, on analysing and deconstructing Trump now. Another thing that interests me about Trump and humour is that he uses it a lot, right? He yeah. uses a kind of humour that yeah. wouldn't make it into one of your scripts. It's not something I necessarily find funny myself, but he really understands the kind of political power of humor, that if you yeah. can get somebody to laugh yeah. at one of his political opponents, he's yeah. basically won and he's, you know, yeah. he's destroyed them. You saw this a lot in the Republican primary. Yeah. He liked to come up with these little epithets yes. for people. So, you know, Marco Rubio was Little Marco. Little Marco. And he knows Lying that, Ted Cruz, lying Crooked, Ted Hillary. Cruz Crooked Hillary. And now it's Rocket Man. Right, now Rocket Man. And, and little he, Rocket Man. And he know. knows that once you've laughed at the opponent, yeah. he's kind of got you. Yeah. Um, it, I mean, that, that sort of would make him harder to satirize as well. No, I mean, it's true. I, mean, I did an interview in the, the Big Issue this, this week with John Oliver, and he was saying he is kind of funny in a, in a very basic way, but he understands the rhythms of jokes and comedy, and he utilizes them. I mean, we mustn't forget what he's 
and he's not an idiot, you know. He's deluded and he's erratic and dangerous, but he's not an idiot. He's smart, but smart at certain things. He's a smart salesperson. That's his whole, entire career. He's selling himself as going to be terrific. You know, he, he's going to do a deal with America that would be better than any other deal. You know, it's all talk, but you're kind of lured into it. You're, you're slightly dazzled and charmed by it. You know, and and part of that is the is the humor is the it's not self-deprecation. It's it's against his opponents, but it is it employs a comedian's method of undercutting someone and deflating someone, a figure in authority. And, and that puts him in the eyes of the public as the David attacking the Goliath, strangely enough. You know, so that's that's where he's coming from. And that's all from this episode of The Economist Asks. And before I head off for my mulled wine and many other Christmas sins, if you've missed any of our episodes, or indeed you'd like to go back and just have a re-listen, they're all available through Acast or Apple Podcasts. We'll be back in the new year with a new clutch of guests to welcome into our studio for a good quizzing. And a personal thank you for me and all of the team at Economist Radio for your support this year. Do keep listening. And in that spirit of generosity, and in that spirit of generosity, if you like what we do, you could consider taking out a subscription to the paper. In London, this is The Economist. 